Hello and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Um, man, man, technical stuff. Uh, it's taken me ages to actually get started and get going. And all because of a blinking cable. Anyway, uh, the buzz has gone. There is no buzz and we are good to go. Uh, something that's uh, not going though is, is films and cinemas opening. They're pushing it back. But I'm not going to bother talking about it again. Because we've, we've already talked about it. What I am going to talk about is the fact that Sony... I'm pretty sure it's Sony came out and said... I should have checked. But uh, I've said that they're going to try and do some more animations. But not just family animations. But they're going to do R-rated animations. Um, it makes sense. Uh, they're easy to make. You can do them from home. Um, and the fact that there are a lot of family and kid friendly animations out there um i think that going r-rated is the way to go really there's not really been a lot in memory uh there was sausage party that weird seth rogan one that was there there was like a food orgy i don't know uh isle of dogs uh which was incredible uh that stop motion wes anderson one that was great uh nine the one that i covered in alpha set uh, and the very first alpha set. Um, that was that was one. Uh, Beowulf. I've talked about that before. The weird, golden Angelina Jolie. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, R-rated films are that are animated are like DVD stuff. There's like mainly like DC animated films and kind of spin-offs of like other TV and films like Hellboy and things like that. And it's just, I don't know. You you don't get to see many of them. So I think it'd be good to see more of them. And I think there's definitely a gap in the market for it. Um, I think that, and the fact that it's animation means that you've got way more scope to do way more stuff. Like you've got almost an unlimited budget. Like you can do anything in animation. And like we've seen a rise in kind of adult animated shows like Eureka Morty, Bojack Horseman, Archer, Final Space, Two Compatibility. Like people like these shows. People will go and see R-rated animated films. And like because it's anime like animation isn't just like 2d stock 2d animation or whatever like there's so many different styles and stuff um like you could do like 3d stuff and you could even try and make them like really photo realistic like it, the lion king like that was i didn't particularly like it for this but it was it was like as close as you're gonna get to photo realism so i mean like go for it i mean you could do that or you could go and do like a stick figures whatever like but i think it's it's definitely something to do and i think it's definitely worth doing but we're moving on to alpha set and we are on h um so this is where we, I, I look at three films that i've never seen before and they all begin with a letter this week it's h uh uh, if you follow me on Twitter at All Out Walker, then you will have already found out the three films that I'm covering. But if not, then it will be a nice surprise for you. Don't worry, there will be no spoilers. Um, but I will kind of recommend them, I guess, if they're any good. The first film that I watched was Hell or High Water. Uh, so this is basically two brothers, Rob, two brothers, two brothers, Robson Banks to save their family ranch while a Texas ranger uh, a few days before retirement tracks them down. Um, it came out in 2016. 
uh, had a budget of $12 million, uh, and made $38 million, so it made a little bit of money, because uh, obviously you need to do twice your budget for the marketing, um, some more numbers, 7.6 on IMDb, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's big, uh, I gave it a 7 out of 10, I thought it was really good, but it is a bit slow at times, um, but that is because it's a western, I guess, um, and I've said in the past that westerns in general are kind of slow at times, like I've looked at 310 to Yuma, and I've looked at Bone Tomahawk, and at times they were both kind of a bit slow, uh, it's just sort of the nature of it, um, nature of that genre, um, but I really enjoyed the relationship of the brothers, um, you could tell that there were differences between them, but like they're still on the same page. They're on the right, the same same train on the same track. Um, they they're all they're both after the same thing. Ben Foster, um, is phenomenal as he always is. He should definitely be. He's Oscar worthy. He is definitely Oscar worthy. Uh, Chris Pine is also very very good. Uh, ben Foster does that sort of unhinged ex-con sort of man very well and. Uh, it, it was fun to see kind of Chris Pine as a good cr- contrast to that like the younger brother kind of being like oh, that a bit more straight laced um, sometimes you get like Chris Pine's character gets a bit sort of frazzled because his brother will just he's just a loose loose cannon and he'll just go off and do something and you'll be like oh. um, but yeah the bank robberies uh, are very well done uh, I think they're well played out in terms of the characters you, you they they kind of you see the the nature is of those two characters within the bank robberies uh, themselves. Like one's an experienced one, one's an amateur one, one's a bit more kind of gung ho, one's a bit more calculated, things like that. It's it's quite it's well done. Um, I also think that he makes for some good kind of action moments, some some ideas that some moments that could have been fatal, really. Um, but yeah, the whole idea and the planning of it all, I I like it. Um, I mean, I'm a sucker for any sort of robbery heist thing, but um, I think that they worked it well. The plans were good, like kind of the choosing the specific times and places to do it and the use of their cars, how they do that. I think that's all really good. Um, and like the the main, like the bank robberies that you see, you do see a number of them throughout the film, but you, you sort of see a few at the start in quick succession Um so you you kind of off on this sort of breakneck pace, like full throttle, and then it kind of slows down quite a lot. Uh, stuff does happen, but personally, I think it slowed down a little too much. Obviously, you are going to slow down in sort of second act. Um, but there was almost times that I was a little bored, and like like I've said, it is a western, so like in a way, so it it does it is kind of makes sense to have stuff be a bit slow. Um, you do follow Jeff Bridges Ranger for quite a bit. It's a typical Jeff Bridges role, just gruff old guy. Um, there's a lot of like racial banter towards his partner, which is kind of a bit like, mm. like he he almost like thinks it's okay because if he gets it back, but he, the other guy's like, well, it's not okay, so I'm not going to give it you back. Like I don't know. It's kind of a similar race, similar relationship to the brothers, like. The older guy is kind of a bit more of a revolution unit sort of thing. I don't know. Um, but they have, and they also have that kind of little bit of animosity towards each other that the brothers sort of do a little bit. Um, but like you do see in the end that they do care about each other despite their differences. 
Um, there's a bit at a casino that I thought was really good. It, it's again part of that smart planning and stuff. Um, obviously, uh, Ben Foster's character nearly gets them in trouble because of the the lad that he is. Um, and you can see that, like, part of that is he like overprotective of his brother as well. Like, there's a bit in the casino where he, the, where there's a bit of almost a bust up because of because of that, and you can see how much that he cares about them in that moment and it kind of brings you back down to sort of like why they're doing it and it's all about kind of family um there's a nice moment uh with chris pine's family because he's divorced and he hasn't he hasn't actually seen his kids in a year uh the time um he was prepared to sacrifice everything for his family but like he um in terms of kind of pulling off these robberies and stuff he's like well as long as they like it works out for them it's fine uh sort of thing and like the it's the same for for Foster's character, but you see that he he's going to cross that line a bit more. Like it's like Chris Pine will do anything, but Ben Foster will do anything and a bit more just because he's a bit of a bit of a one. Um, I thought this film. I know it's a bank robbery film, but it's very very anti bank. There's loads of people that are like bad mouthing them and going, "Oh, well, it's fine because they're." They stole all. They they just steal our money, don't they? Uh, the wanker bankers, uh, which I think is funny, uh, and I think it makes for like a, an interesting sort of discussion, I guess. Um, but like one of the rangers even like is sympathising with him a little bit, um, and then their money guy that they go to sort of at, towards the end and kind of helps them out. Um, I wanted to say like a long guy, but I don't know whether he is, but he helps them out, like. And he, he's not getting... They ask him, like, why are you doing this? And, like, you're not getting loads of... We're not able to pay you loads. And he's like, well, I just kind of want to see them... See the bank get screwed over a bit. And he gives them some, like, advice. So there's some free advice on how he, they can, he can help them or whatever. Which I think is quite cool. Uh, the end, I thought, was really good. I thought it was a fitting ending. Uh, you can sort of see where it's going to go a little bit. Uh, based on kind of the different characters' actions and stuff. Everything sort of makes sense. It fits up nicely. I think maybe they could have subverted it a little bit. Um, but I don't think it detracts from it. I mean, I, I could get into it a little bit more, uh, if, but don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, this film uh, was actually dedicated to David John McKenzie and Ursula Sybil McKenzie. Uh, who were the parents of David McKenzie, who's the director. Um, and they both, unfortunately, they both died while he was making this film. So I think it's it's a nice tribute to them um, as well. But some of the facts that I have found, uh, originally titled, the, the film was originally titled Comancheria, uh, like the place of the Comanches. I don't know why I said Coman, Comanche, Comancheria. I don't know, Comancheria. Um but, but it was changed after a competition between some interns at one of the production companies um, to the title we now know, Hello High Water. Um, but it was still released as Comancheria in some countries because the phrase Hello High Water doesn't always translate that well. Because um, obviously Hell or High Water um, is means, means to do whatever kind of needs to be done, but it's also... Uh, fun fact is or clause in a contract where the paying party has to keep paying despite the circumstances so 
uh, I guess it's the hell or high water clause. Like, you've just got to keep going. Doesn't matter whether you've got no money, you got to keep paying. I don't know. Um, and both versions of that, of the phrase, came up in the film. So, uh, it's interesting. Uh, overall, I thought it was a good film. A little bit slow at points, but I think it's definitely worth a watch. It's not like the most high-octane, action-packed, sort of bank robbery heist sort of thing, but it's kind of a bit more... It's just a Western version of it, I guess. So, yeah, no, it's, it's all right. It's quite good. Uh, second film I watched uh, is a horror film. It's called Hush. Um, so this is a about a deaf and mute writer uh, who is stalked by a masked killer in her remote cabin in the woods. Um, you know that trope, the, the cabin in the woods. It came out in 2016, had a budget of just $1 million. Um, and... It was distributed on net, by Netflix or on Netflix. I don't know how you'd phrase that, but um, so there's no box office information. I don't think it was an actual like it wasn't made for Netflix, so it's not a Netflix film per se. But it is a yeah, just on Netflix. Um, it's got a six point six on IMDb, so people liked it. Ninety three percent on Rotten Tomato, so the critics very much liked it. Um, I give it an eight out of ten. I thought it was very good, very tense. Though, having thought about it and looked when I was writing stuff up, I don't know whether I'd give it a nine, you know. It is, it is pretty darn good. Um, so it opens with the main character kind of cooking and doing a bit of writing. And then a friend pops around. And all through this, it kind of really, you get immersed in, in this writer's world. And it really sells you on like the deaf and the mute aspects of her life. There's a lot of sign language involved. She uses FaceTime to talk to people um, by kind of lip reading or doing sign language and stuff. I don't know why, but I'm doing like fake sign language in the air. Nobody can see. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, But then, of course, the masked man shows up. And I think the first death is is a well-worked scene. Uh, I mean, the death in itself isn't particularly creative, but the way it's shot is very good. It utilizes the deaf aspect well. Um, like in terms of the sound mixing, this is kind of all the way through the film. They use like some like the muffled and almost deaf like kind of sounds, like like everything's dulled, which I think is really good uh, and a really good technique. Um, like sort of what so when you're in her head, then you, you can't really hear anything. Uh, the killer's obviously confused because she's not reacting to anything. Um. I think the killer in in its in themselves, in himself, his himself, uh, is interesting because he's got a crossbow. Like it's, I mean, it's not a spoiler, but he's got a crossbow, which is interesting. Because uh, never really see crossbows in just anything, um, and I thought it was a very effective sort of weapon and stuff. And it was different to it's like a silent gun almost and i think it, it was it was effective like if you if it's just a gun then it's not as intimidating but a crossbow you're like ooh. um he does take his mask off uh about a third of the way in and he doesn't put it back on and i was a bit good i think it's a shame because it is a simple mask but i thought it was excellent and i thought it a mask killer is scarier than a non-mask killer, unless they're like a maniac sort of thing, like like a plasticine face that that moulds into weird, grotesque images. Um, but yeah, 
so I think they they should put the mask back on. Uh, personally, later on, but um, they didn't, uh, which I think is a shame because a lot of the marketing and stuff was about that, and I think it was, and I think it's scarier. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it's a very good cat and mouse game because they're both very smart. They're both trying to move, and then that counter move kind of predicts each other. Um, and I think the mute aspect of our of the girl's character um or the woman's character i guess um i thought that was really refreshing because she, she's not screaming which like it's a massive bugbear for me for horror films like the screaming is worse than the actual stuff that's happening it's just i don't like it um i get it but i don't feel like you can act that much if you're just screaming a little bit and it's just like eh. But she doesn't do any of that. She doesn't scream. And she doesn't even scream when she's in pain. So, like, something happens to her hand at one point. Um, and it's just, like, she doesn't scream out because she can't. But you see her, like, almost trying to. And I think it was really good. Um, but, uh, and like I say, I think the action acting performance for that is excellent because because it's very hard, because it's all physical, there's no, like, I think she has, like, a line or two that's sort of, like, in her head, but, like, it's it's basically all just a physical performance, and I just thought it was solid work. Um, the character itself, you, like, like I was saying, they're both quite smart and stuff, but you see that she's quite a tough cookie as well, like, she can give as good as she gets, as she uh, does damage the killer at various points and i think it's i think it's very good and it works well and you kind of like i say got a good cat and mouse thing another person does show up so another cat or another mouse another mouse i think it's another another mouse shows up um again that was very well worked as a scene it's quite a tense one there's kind of conversations i have that they're having to try and explain things away and there's suspicions are arising and stuff and i thought the killer they're very well uh, they've judged the situation well and they've kind of dealt with it in a pretty smart and clever way um yeah i just think it was very good in terms of kind of the way that people's thought processes went and and things like that uh the ending's a bit brutal but i mean again it was it was just brilliantly executed um there's also uh, towards the end of the film, there's a nice callback to the start of the film where uh, she's writing a writing a book and she's trying to decide because she's written a few endings and she's trying to decide which one. Uh, and there's like a similar scenario plays out in her head at one point. Like she's like, oh, these are the endings that could possibly happen and which one do you want, basically. Um, but yeah, uh, the fun facts about this film. Uh, so this was written by Kate Siegel, who is the lead actor and Mike Flanagan, who is the director, and they wrote it when they were on a dinner date in 2014. Um, they it obviously went well because they got married in 2016, which was the year the film came out. So obviously, yeah, uh, it worked well. Um, they would role play the scenes at home before they scripted it because they didn't want to write stuff down if they didn't weren't happy with it. it. They were kind of wanted to see how different characters would would react, and they were trying to logic it out. When I think it worked, I think that that really helped the film um but like i say because she doesn't talk in the film 
there's less than 15 minutes of dialogue in like a nearly 90 minute film and so there's like but because uh the director mike flanagan didn't want pure silence throughout the film he actually put in a few sort of ambient sounds and stuff and like an ultrasound like the sound of an ultrasound machine uh just to kind of provide a little bit of noise which i think worked well um but yeah overall i think it's just a really solid really tight film it doesn't overstay its welcome it doesn't feel rushed at all uh it is less than 90 minutes but i think it is it doesn't need to be any longer uh there's only about five characters in it and one of them's on a screen so i mean i just whatever it's i think it's excellent work excellent stuff you could almost see this as like a you could I was going to say you could almost do this as like a theatre thing, but I mean, you could do, but I don't know whether you would, but I think it could work if you really wanted to, if people are interested in that. But I I think it's just an excellent, excellent film uh, and just solidly executed. Uh, Mike Flanagan has obviously has been, done some other uh, very acclaimed things, uh, TV shows and films. And so I was kind of, that's one of the things that drew me to this. And it did not disappoint. Um, and for a definitive rating, I am going to give it a. I'm still. I'm going to stick with an eight. I think, uh, just because I, I wasn't scared that much, and I kind of wanted a bit more, bit more frightening, bit bit more frights. Um, but yeah, moving on to the third final film. Uh, it's Hustlers. Uh, so this is the story of former strippers Destiny and Ramona, their money-making exploits and troubles along the way. Uh, let's do some statistics. Uh, it came out in 2019 last year. Uh, had a $20 million budget, which seems quite a quite. I was going to say quite a lot. I mean quite a little, not that much. Uh, but it made... 158 million so that's a pretty decent chunk of change even with the uh, marketing budget uh it's got a 6.3 on imdb 87 percent on rotten tomatoes these are all good good scores for the critics and i gave it a 7 out of 10 i thought it was pretty good though it wasn't massively engaging all the way through i found um but we'll we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a bit uh i thought the format of the film was a really good idea because it's based on an article um and so the story is based like you're it, you, it's basically being relayed by destiny to the interviewer for the article that it's based on which i think is really clever and it's a really good way of sort of structuring it and formatting it you kind of get bits of stuff and then you come back to the interview and then you go back and she's explaining stuff. But you only find that out like 15, 20 minutes in, which I feel you should have just opened it with it because it, I think, a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it, it almost took me aback a little bit, like when it happened. And I was like, oh, that's that's cool. That's, I like it. But like, I don't know. I just feel like you should know that up top is, is all I'm saying. Um, the setup in itself, I think it's it's a nice setup. It sucks you into the world and the people that go to like the strip club and stuff. Um, I think maybe it spends a little too long. That's the sort of the 15, 20 minutes that you get. Um, 
you start to think that you because you you get sucked into it and then you start to think you know what the film's about and then that's not actually what it's about like you're you're getting this sort of almost wolf of wall street vibe to it and like excess and sort of things like that and the you get like a lot of camaraderie between the strippers like they're like they become like sisters they're sort of in a way they're like i thought they were pretty inspirational because they're like putting themselves through college while they're there and like they've got aspirations of like fashion design and stuff and it's like oh that's pretty good like doing it yeah you you go girl and like but yeah everything's good and like we're loving life and everything like that and and stuff and then you kind of get and then it kind of doesn't carry on like that like the good times turn to bad times um the like this sort of world isn't something that you think about when like it when sort of bad times come around and like this in with the economy and stuff and i thought there was some interesting repercussions from it um like obviously wall street guys are the main clients and if they're not making money they're not going to go um and like you get this really different kind of tone and vibe and atmosphere to the whole film really and i feel that that's sort of like if you because you'd had like a quite a long setup you were settled into this like oh yeah like this happy sort of and it is almost like a whiplash sort of thing and it's like i don't i think for some people that might work and it might be like that shock value almost thing but i don't think it works i think that you need i think it just jars and like the tone you need to you i i think you do need that bit at the start but i think just make it shorter make it 10 minutes something like that like something that you can you're not invested in it like you you get the idea you're like oh yeah, yeah i get the picture but like you don't you don't like i don't know yeah you're not emotionally invested or whatever um there is a, a jump forward uh in time obviously because it's kind of being relayed um and there are brief glimpses of kind of the main character destiny uh her life changing I think maybe you could have done some more stuff with J-Lo's character with Ramona. Because the film is all about the two of them. But you only really get it from Constance Wu, uh, or Destiny's perspective. I think it would have been nice to see more of J-Lo's perspective. Especially like like the time that the good went to the bad. And stuff got hard. Because sort of, I think you definitely could have like sown some seeds of like this is how they like she almost this is almost the start of a self-destructive like path or whatever um and like sort of teases how and why she starts to kind of change a bit later on um i thought it's interesting i don't know why but we as think i reckon as a human race i speak for the entirety of the human race when i think we have a weird obsession with watching the downward spiral of somebody uh, of somebody's life i don't know what it is but we enjoy a car crash of a life um and you get that in this film uh there's that the downward spiral there's obsessive nature comes forward um this all sort of almost comes about because they've had to go independent a little bit and they start to lose their aspirations you know like, they're no longer like putting themselves through college or like getting trying to be fashion designers or whatever there's none of that it's just this is it this is what we're doing now this is all all this is our life this is all it it's all about the here and now it's all about this work um and i 
like I've written here that they're almost empowered by bitterness. So like, like th- this is the reason for them almost carrying on and doing this is because they're bitter about, or like the reason why they're doing it to the people that they're doing it to is because they're like, well, you screwed us all over before, so we'll just screw you over now. So I think, which is it's fine. And I think it's a good sort of thing. But I think that because you're going into it with like a sort of a negative attitude, then you're almost getting that. It's almost like a recipe for disaster. Um, I enjoyed seeing, well, I don't enjoy, but it's interesting seeing the effect that all of this sort of change in behavior has on the relationships, especially between the two main characters. It kind of really contrasts what is happening earlier in the film, like all the friendships start to kind of fray a little bit. And I think the fact that you, they did show that at the start uh, really helped it and really helped to see that contrast a lot. Um, I thought the acting was very all very good. Uh, people don't really like Jennifer Lopez acting, but I think she's fine. Um, I watched three series of her in Shades of Blue. She was very good in that, and I think she was really good in this. I think she was very convincing in her mentor slash leader role. Uh, Constance Wu, the main main character, isn't main actress, isn't actually someone that I've really seen before or heard of before. But I thought she did a great job. She it was a really solid performance all around. She conveyed the emotion well, and she really sold you on like the motivations and the relatability. Um, which I thought was good. I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought that this film, like I said, that had sort of tonal issues. And so I think I, that it maybe suffered due to the marketing. Cause the marketing was all like, yeah, it's going to be kind of funny and Wolf of Wall Street-esque. But then obviously after that initial opening thing, it's not like that. And there's kind of, there's more to it than that. There's more heart to it. But you almost don't want there to be because you wanted this sort of crime comedy film but now you've got a drama like i guess and you're like i don't but i don't want that so i think i don't know i think both are equally valid i think both kinds of those films would work but i think it sort of led you down the wrong path in that opening bit and with the marketing which isn't necessarily the fault of like the director or whatever the production companies whatever but i think it it does uh, it definitely painted a different picture for me uh, and definitely changed my view of the film. I think if I'd have known going in that it was going to be a bit more dramatic, then I would have gone, yeah, okay, that's fine. And I would have enjoyed it more, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. But yeah, let's look at some fun facts. Um, so apparently J-Lo and Constance Wu improvised a lot on set. And the director, Laureen Scafaria, just, just let him go for it. Because apparently they were so good that, like, they came up with some really good stuff and they were really good together and kind of... So I think that's that helps in terms of uh, kind of having that bond with people and having that relationship. We had it the other week in End of Watch. There was a lot of improvisation there. And I think it if you can get that, and then you, it really helps solidify those sort of relationships on screen. Um Martin Scorsese, who actually directed The Wolf of Wall Street, he turned this film down. He was actually asked to direct it. Um, but he turned it down. Uh, Lorraine Scafaria, uh, who actually directed it, she really wanted this film. She like kept a slate open for it, um, which I guess you wouldn't normally do. It's a bit of a risky move. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think what well, she jumped on it as soon as she got the chance, and I think she did a great job with it. Uh, J Lo uh, practiced a load of pole dancing for months before shooting, mainly because she's got a solo performance kind of at the start, um, and she actually did all that. Um, like she did the whole thing. It's really impressive. Um, the outfit that was at, she actually had on was tailor made for her for flexibility, and because the the costume designer was like, well look how muscular she's got doing all this stuff. Let's show this off. Um, but yeah, and that scene was actually shot on the director, Lorene Scafario's birthday. I mean, what a present. You get to see Jennifer Lopez do a pole dance for you. I'd, I'd, I'd be very happy if that was my birthday present. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it was a pretty good film. Uh, it suffered a bit from some tonal issues, but I don't think it necessarily hurts the film that much. But um, yeah, just a seven for me. So now we're moving on to a film that wasn't. Uh, so this is where I talk about a film that eh, was in production at some point, in some way, in some sort of development, but unfortunately, she's never seen it for some reason. Um, this week, uh, we're talking about Rendezvous with, with Rama. Um, so this was originally a book that was published in 1973, and it was written by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, now, this guy is a big science fiction writer. He also wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the film that was based... He, he wrote both the screenplay for the film with Stanley Kubrick and the book that it was based on. So this guy's got pedigree. Um, uh, so basically, uh, the book tells the story of a massive meteor shower that happens in 2077, uh, it wipes out Venice, Verona, and Padua in Italy, and it kills hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the Earth, the government of Earth, or I guess just the governments of Earth, I guess, uh, decide to start Project Space Guard. Project Space Guard uh, that will detect and intercept any other similar space objects, um, which is good stuff. Then you got a time jump and you go to 2130 where an object is picked up by said project. By Project Space Guard. Um, it's discovered that this object is a perfect cylinder that is 54 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide. In my notes, I've written 54 km and 20 kilometers. I've written the word kilometer. I don't know why I've done that. Interesting. You didn't need to know that. Anyway, it's named the Rama after the Hindu deity because uh, they've gone through all of the Roman uh, deities and the Greek deities uh, naming stuff. So they've gone to the Hindu ones uh, and the survey ship called Endeavour is sent to intercept it. Uh, they check it out and there's some weird stuff happening in that ship, in that cylinder. Um, there's a gravitational field. Uh, because the cylinder's constantly rotating, so they're all, like, stuck to the outside of it, which I think is cool. Um, and there are cities, like, in quotation marks, uh, including London, Paris, Tokyo, Rome, and Moscow. Hmm. Uh, there's also a north and a south pole, and a 10-kilometer sea that divides them. So it's very interesting. Um, so they, this is said to be one of the greatest science fiction books of the 20th century 
Uh, and Arthur C. Clarke is one of the big three science writers that also includes Isaac Asimov, who is known for creating the law of robotics. Um, that is like, uh, I can't remember what they are. I should have looked them up. Anyway, and Robert Heinlein, who wrote the book Starship Troopers in the 50s. So I guess the film was based on that. Um, Morgan Freeman, the big man, the great man, Morgan Freeman, the free man, has been trying to get it made since the early 2000s. Uh, even got David Fincher on board uh, to direct. Uh, di- David Fincher has done Fight Club and The Social Network and uh, Gone Girl and other great things. Um, so it, it looks very promising. Morgan Freeman, David Fincher, all looks good. Um, there were a few little initial funding issues, but all seemed good to go. But in the late 2000s, Fincher came out and said, looks like it's not going to happen. There's no script. And as you know, Morgan Freeman's not in the best of health right now. We've been trying to do it, but it's probably not going to happen. Now, I bet you're wondering, Morgan Freeman, not in the best of health. He looks great for his age. He's still going. He's 83. I mean, I don't think he was at the time, but he is now. I wondered the same thing. I looked it up. Morgan Freeman was involved in a car accident on the 3rd of August, 2008. Uh, his car flipped over several times, breaking his left shoulder, his arm, and his elbow. So, it's obviously no fit so they, to shoot a film. Um, so, that's obviously what he was talking about. Um, so, we needed that time to recover. Um, according to IMDb, because um, there wasn't really anything about like the sort of writing of stuff in the articles that I saw, but according to IMDb, Stel Pavlou uh, was writing a script uh, and there's four other people that are credited as working on the screenplay at various points, but there hasn't been any luck with a script. Um, Morgan Freeman's still massively passionate about it uh, and has talked about it in interviews. There was an interview uh, with someone for the film Oblivion that came out in 2013, the Tom Cruise one, and someone interviewed him and asked him about it. And he was quite passionate about it. Uh, and David Fincher, uh, he's technically not officially attached to it, but it still looks like he'd be interested. Uh, he said in 2011, which I know is like nine years ago, but I think he'd still be interested, uh, that Rendezvous with Rama is a great story that has an amazing role for Morgan Freeman, who is an amazing actor and would be amazing in this thing. He likes the word amazing, doesn't he? Uh, the question was, can we get a script that's worthy of Morgan? Apparently not. And can we get a script that's worthy of Arthur Clarke? Probably not. And can we do all of that in an envelope that will allow the movie to take the kinds of chances that it wants to take? Because we want to make a movie where kids go out of the theatre and instead of buying an action figure, they buy a telescope. That was the hope. Um, I think it's an, it was an exciting project. you got Freeman and Fincher on board. Fincher has sci-fi pedigree with his debut, directorial debut. Uh, Alien 3, but people don't like that, but that's I think that's mainly because of studio interference and restrictions. Um, so without the f- restrictions, you think he'd make a great sci-fi film, and the technology nowadays is unbelievable, um, and it definitely look amazing. Um, I mean, I covered Ad Astra uh, a number of weeks ago, and that looked phenomenal. Um, also previously deemed unfilmable due to its lack of plot, um, but I think now films are more exploratory. There's a load of films right now that there's not a load of plot in it. 
Um, a terrific sci-fi film with not a huge amount of plot is Arrival. Um, so I, and if you do it like in that sort of style, Arrival is one of my, is one of the all-time greats in my opinion. Um, and I, so I think you could do a terrific film. Um, for, but there is, there is a bit of a downside. Obviously, this was all kind of mid-2000s that this was happening. Uh, and Morgan Freeman was at the time about 70s, late 60s, 70s. But he's getting older, man. He's getting older and he's getting less believable as the captain of a survey ship. Maybe this survey ship has sailed. Um, but maybe he can still be involved. I mean, maybe he can be a member of the crew. Maybe he can kind of be on board. I don't know. Maybe he still could be the captain. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily argue. Uh, in 2012, he, in a some sort of interview or discussion about it, he insisted, we are making this movie. I'm not going to do a voice. I'm not going to do the voice. We are. No, I'm not going to do it. We are making this movie. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to argue with the voice of God. So I think that he will make it maybe at some point if he doesn't die first. Um, there is some good news, though. Uh, unlike a lot of the films that we cover for this section, uh, there is some good news. Because uh, a short film was made in 2001 by a New York University film student, Aaron Ross. And that showed what the film could potentially look like. It was like an animated sort of thing. Uh, and... And about 10 years ago, 2009, 2010, something like that, I think. Um, this footage was then used by Vancouver film student uh, Philip Mahoney. Um, he read all the audio. He took just the, the visuals. He read all the audio and cut it together slightly. He cut the, the visuals together slightly. Um, but... And I think it did a great job with it. I think it, I, I've seen it. It's definitely worth checking out if you're sort of interested in what this sort of thing looked like and kind of what the story is in general. Uh, it's on YouTube. Um, it's definitely worth a watch. I think it's great. I think it definitely could work as a film. It definitely has, uh, feels a bit like a rival to me in terms of things that it could do and things that, it, in terms of, the sort of like, a ship has arrived and we're just going to see what, what's going on sort of thing and you're kind of working things out and explore exploring it i think that's i think that's what you want i think it'd be great it's just a shame that it's not happened really moving on to the final section of the show and it's one of my favorites it is quick fic um this is where i take one of 20 film characters and i plunk them into one of 20 film franchises but wait there's more I have to make a prequel, sequel, spin-off, or a reboot with said character in said franchise. Uh, we've had we had Robocop and James Bond last week. We've had Buzz Lightyear and Indiana Jones. We've had uh, Predator in Star Trek. So let's see what we get this week. Let's see what kind of film we're making. We're making a sequel uh, of what franchise? We're making a sequel to Pirates of the Caribbean. Caribbean, the Caribbean with Mad Max wow that's uh Mad Max is not Mad Max is desert how's that gonna work can you have like a Mad can you have a Mad Max boat maybe have him as a yeah because you just put him in putting him in the in the film so it's got to be in the Pirates of the Caribbean world Mad Max Ooh, maybe is radiation a thing in the Pirates of the Caribbean I don't know why radiation would be a thing 
Like, I don't know. Mad Max is a character. There's not a lot. He's kind of a, I don't know. He's kind of a blank slate. He kind of comes in, does a thing and goes out again, doesn't he? So we're making a sequel. So I guess he would just be a, yeah. So I guess you'd make, he'd just be almost like a secondary the arc to the film like he's just uh, an outsider that just sort of wanders in helps to fix the situation and then goes off out into the desert or the water as is now the case um yeah i think that's the thing he's obviously obviously he'd have to be very good at boat battles i guess uh and proficient at he's well maybe not proficient at the firearms and stuff but yeah i think it's i think uh, I don't know. I think maybe Mad Max is almost a bad choice because he's almost. I think the thing about Mad Max is almost the world rather than the the character of Mad Max. But if we try and pour over some of his memorable stuff, he can have like a leatherish jacket um, that's kind of ripped with one sleeve where it's ripped. He can have. Um, I don't know. I was going to say something about his car and his boat, but I don't think you could really port that across but yeah i think it's definitely he would be the side part of the story i think that's definitely the way that you do it because i think a lot of these film, the mad max films are almost like well you could do it but without mad max a little bit like he's just almost there along for the ride um so i think i think a pirates of the caribbean film with mad max in it would work very similarly to that and that he would come in, travel in, do his do the do, and then go off again. And I think it. W- I think it'd be fine. I think it'd be a great character. But I don't think it. And I think it would make for an interesting sort of film, uh, an interesting sort of arc. And uh, maybe he sort of. I don't know. Maybe he settles down. I mean, you could do that if you wanted to. Who cares? Um, but yeah, I think that would be the way to do it. Um, in terms of kind of making it a sequel. Um, well, the last one that we got. Um, presume, well, you're making it a sequel to that one. Um, and so you'd have to have the new Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan, the new Orlando Bloom and Keira Knightley. Uh, who, who what were the names? Is it like Bren, Brendan, Brendan Thwaites? And, um, what's her name? I'd know it. I'd know it if I saw it. She was in, she was in the... Maze Runner, uh, whatever name is from the Maze Runner, um, but yeah, um, you could do that, uh, and then they're in it, and then Captain Jack comes in as well, and maybe there's a bit of a, bit of a thing between Captain Jack and Mad Max, I think that'd be quite fun, but I can't, I can't see Mad Max falling, he's probably used to it though, he's used to all of these weird things going on, but I think that he... He, he wouldn't stand for any nonsense. He's a no-nonsense sort of man, but he is surrounded by nonsense. So I think that would be a good, good fit. Um, but yeah, I'm, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm sort of on board. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think you just stick Mad Max in an existing script as opposed to making a massive change around it. But I think that you that he will be a very good addition to the script and to whatever. I mean, you could almost... Yeah. So, yeah, I I would enjoy seeing that, I for sure. Um, but if you can think of any other ideas, 
um, they're maybe incorporating Mad Max into the script a bit more, um, then you can let me know uh, on Twitter at All Out Walker or by email at fillmeuppod at outlook.com. Um, and that applies if you wanted to chat about anything, any of the films that we've talked about this week, any films that you want me to cover, any uh, anything else. Um, I also saw that Margot Robbie was apparently rebooting Pirates of the Caribbean. They're all female cast. I don't know why they're doing all female. There's females in it anyway. But yeah, I think that'd be fun. Maybe they could put Mad Max in it. How about that? Um, anyway, this that's me for this week. And I will see you next time for set I. I know my alphabet. Set I. Um, I will be putting out a tweet on Monday uh, with... The films that I'll be covering. So if you want to watch along then you can do. But if you don't, you don't have to. Because there's no spoilers. No spoilers at all. Anyway, uh, that's it for now. I will see you next week. Uh, uh, Metaphorically, I'm not actually seeing you. But metaphorically I will see you. I'll be here next week and you will hopefully be wherever you are listening. Good. Bye.